The views expressed here do not reflect the views of our respective employers. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. SpexCast is made for space fans like you. Check out daily space news and mission deep dives on our website, blog.spexcast.com, and join the space discussion on forum.spexcast.com. You can also send us a tweet at SpexCast or an email to SpexCast at gmail.com. Whether it be NASA directives, FCC regulations, or military operations in space, there is no doubt that policy has a significant impact on industry at every turn. Today on SpexCast, we'll take a closer look at space policy with Marcia Smith, the founder and editor of SpacePolicyOnline.com. In addition to her space journalism, Ms. Smith is president of the Space and Technology Policy Group, specializing in policy analysis of civil, military, and commercial space programs. Prior to this, she earned 31 years of experience providing objective nonpartisan analysis at the Congressional Research Service, followed by three years at the National Research Council as the Director of Space Stu- as the Director of the Space Studies Board and the Director of the Aeronautics and Space Engineering Board. Marsha has also authored or co-authored more than 220 reports and articles on space, nuclear energy, and telecommunications, not including her articles and reports on space policy online. Marsha, welcome to Spectacast. Thank you very much for inviting me. So what do you mean when we talk about space policy? Policy is the overarching principles that one has in order to conduct one's business or whatever it is you want to do. So there are business policies and government policies. It's a very broad term. In the context of national space policy, it's usually something that is set by the president and or by Congress. Can you describe your beat as a space policy journalist? I cover all space activities, domestic and international, commercial, civil, uh, military. I cover the whole range of space activities. And I do it from a policy perspective, not from an engineering perspective or a science perspective. But of course, the policymakers in Washington want to know what's going on in science and technology. So it's, it's the whole beat. I cover everything. And so when we speak about space policy, we're not talking about a NASA regulation for how to torque a specific bolt, right? Like, what is a space policy in a more broad sense? And uh, can you give us names some examples? So a space policy is, for example, uh, we're going to go back to the moon by 2024. It's a policy. It's also a goal. And once you have a policy, then you need an implementation plan. You need a strategy in order to carry it out. But the policy policy can be American leadership in space. Policy can be we're going to work with international partners or we're going to work with commercial partners. All of those are policy decisions that are made for the overall principle of what it is we want to accomplish with the space program. What are the role of organizations like the Congressional Research Service and the National Academy of Sciences when it comes to forming new policies and deciding on which programs to pursue? So there's policy that's made at the White House through directives. Right now, President Trump has put out four space policy directives that set out what his administration's policy is. And some of them build upon the national space policy that was put out through President Obama. Congress has policies that they do through laws. Uh, There are many NASA authorization laws that set policy for the civil space program. There are defense authorization laws that set policy for the National Security Space Program. And some of those say that this is how we're going to interact with the commercial sector. So that's where all the policy comes in. And there are many players in setting policy. I mean, more than you probably can imagine. And there are lobbyists who come in representing companies or organizations. There are individual constituents who have some interest in space and they contact the policymakers in Washington. And then there are these organizations, think tanks, and some of them take points of view and others don't, that, you know, sort of a residence of expertise that will come in with studies that say you should do this, that, or the other. So all of these things are impacting policy. The Congressional Research Service is a department of the Library of Congress, but unlike the rest of the library, it works exclusively for the members and the committees of Congress. And it's basically a think tank for Congress, but it does not take positions on issues. Its entire job is to inform the debate, 
to provide objective nonpartisan analysis to help members of Congress understand what the choices are. What are the pros and the cons? What's gonna happen if you go this way? What's gonna happen if you go that way? So the members of Congress can make better informed decisions when they're setting policy. So CRS works only for the legislative branch and it helps them in setting policy. The National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, which most people just call the National Academies, is outside the government. It's a nonprofit organization. It was actually created in law in 1863 by uh, President Lincoln. And it gathers together science and engineering experts from around the country and sometimes from other countries in order to provide expert advice, mostly to the federal government. They do do some work for other organizations, but mostly to the federal government. And so they're coming at it with a different set of people, people who are working in these areas, the top scientists, the top engineers, bringing that expertise into the policymaking process so that people can make better informed decisions. But they do take positions on issues. With your work at the Congressional Research Service and uh, National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, I'm sure that when you were performing these studies, you probably had an expectation for what the outcome would be. Was there ever a case where the policy result um, did not match what you expected at the start? Uh, Actually, when you're doing these studies or when you're working at CRS, you have no idea what the result is going to be, especially in the political realm, because there are so many factors that feed into politics. And so you can look at a particular issue like, you know, should you build a space station or not? And some of that has to do with money. A lot of these policy decisions depend on funding. And so it often comes down to just how much money is available to do these things. But it's also politics and which member of Congress holds a powerful committee position and and may or may not have somebody from a NASA center or a DOD center in their district. And so there are all these factors that feed into policy. And I tell people who want to get into policy that the most important attribute you have to have is a good sense of humor because you can work on these issues day in, day out, 16 hour days, seven days a week, and you really think you're making progress and people are understanding why this position is better than that position. And and maybe sometimes you even get it through. Maybe a directive comes out or a law comes out that yes, they understood. And then a whole bunch of new politicians get elected and they say, well, I don't like that. And then they change it and, and you're back to square one. So. I can't think of a case actually where I expected any particular outcome in these studies. You know, our our jobs, whether it's at CRS or at the academies, is to provide the best analysis or the best advice that we can provide. And what the policymakers do with it, they do with it. Fascinating. You are the director of the Space Studies Board and the Aeronautics and Space Engineering Board. Those two organizations sound pretty similar. What's the actual difference? Well, the Space Studies Board primarily does space science as opposed to engineering. Uh, Back in the day when these, the boards are sort of an administrative unit through which the academies do their work, sort of grouping things into different categories. And uh, back in the day, the National Academy of Sciences had a space studies board and the National Academy of Engineering had the Aeronautics and Space Engineering Board. But there were a number of reorganizations over the decades and, and now they're both within the same division of the academies and they used to be completely separate. They had separate board directors and separate sources of funding, and, and they were totally separate. There actually was a third board for many years, but uh, the three co- got combined into two, and then the two aren't really combined yet because one really has an engineering focus and one has a science focus, but they do now have a shared director. I was the first person to be director of both boards, but since I left, the next two directors also have directed both boards. And, and the Aeronautics Board does a lot of aviation work in, in addition to, to space. So they really are different organizations, but interrelated. On that note, policy often takes longer to develop than the technologies that it affects. Is this a benefit or a weakness to the policymaking process? Well, I think that in many fields, maybe not so much in space, but certain, certainly in some of the information technology things, the internet uh, policy does often lag technology. And by the time you get a law passed or a directive approved by a president, the technology has marched on. 
but policy by its nature, generally speaking, is much bigger and broader than a specific technology. So while it, it does hamper you in a case where, say, you're trying to protect privacy uh, from uh, on the internet, it's very hard for laws to catch up with that because it takes so long for laws to get passed. But in something like space, we're still debating all these decades later whether to go back to the moon before you go to Mars. And so you don't quite see that so much in the space realm, but you do see it in other technology areas. Great. Well, I'd like to kind of switch gears here to policy, mill space, and the future of space operations. Um, obviously, the military with a very large budget has a lot of uh, impact in what we do in space. So kind of the first up, I would think probably the most uh, household name of, of space policies is the Outer Space Treaty. So what is the future of the Outer Space Treaty? Uh, India just tested a new anti-satellite missile technology in March, and as more countries are pushing its boundaries or straight up crossing them, uh, what will its role continue to be? So the Outer Space Treaty, treaties are laws. It's the highest law of the land according to the Constitution. So the Outer Space Treaty is a, is a law, not so much a policy, but an actual law. And it does not prohibit anti-satellite tests. So the fact that India or China or the United States or the Soviet Union conduct anti-satellite tests does not violate the Outer Space Treaty and doesn't require any changes to it. Uh, the Outer Space Treaty uh, bans military activities on the moon, but not on Earth or in Earth orbit. It does uh, prohibit placing weapons of mass destruction in Earth orbit, but the anti-satellite weapons that have been tested so far are not weapons of mass destruction. So there's been debate you know, for the last two, three decades about whether or not the Outer Space Treaty has outlived its usefulness. But overall, because of the basic principles that it has and the fact that there are over 100 countries that have signed on to it, I think there's a general feeling that it is worthwhile to keep the treaty as it is, to keep it in force, to not walk away from it, and not try to change it. Because if you try to change it, then you open up Pandora's box and you don't know what's going to happen. There have been discussions for years and years with the United Nations about additional treaties, particularly on banning weapons from outer space, but they have not gone anywhere. And I think in the current climate, getting new treaties probably on just about anything, never mind on space, is probably unlikely. But I think the Outer Space Treaty uh, still serves a very useful purpose in setting out the basic principles of exploring and using space. The U.S. Strategic Space Command has made statements that space is now this contested domain. How do geopolitics affect our national space policy? Oh, geopolitics have a very dramatic impact on space policy, uh, I think both in the civil and the national security sphere. Um, one area that people point to where geopolitics has not had an impact so is the International Space Station, where the United States and Russia are still cooperating very effectively on that, despite the changed geopolitical climate since they annexed Crimea back in 2014. Uh, but yes, geopolitics has a dramatic impact on space uh, across the board. One of the biggest uh, newsworthy uh new space policies of 2017 or 2018 was uh, the announcement of a potential space force and discussions around that. Uh, what role do you think a space force will play in policy creation uh, if it becomes a real government agency? For example, we have a lot of organizations of different sizes and varying influence both in the public and behind closed doors. For example, the NRO, uh, Air Force Strategic Command, NASA, the FAA, uh, with a much larger organization like Space Force in play, how do they participate together in creating policies? So right now, the way the Space Force is conceived, it will be part of the Air Force. And it's not going to be all that large, comparatively speaking. They're talking about maybe 15,000, 20,000 people in the Space Force. And the purpose of the Space Force is not really to set policy. It's to organize, train, and equip that's the phrase they use for what the military services do. So the Space Force's job will be to organize, train, and equip personnel to support the U.S. Space Command, which they are reestablishing. So it's not just the Space Force, and there aren't going to be people, you know, stationed in space doing things. They're going to be, you know, sitting in offices like all the other uh, service members do. And their, their job will be not 
setting policy. There are people in the Air Force and people in DOD who advise on policy and set policy, but their job is to organize, train, and equip the uh, personnel to support U.S. Space Command in its role in prosecuting any activities that we need in order to uh, protect and defend our space assets. That said, do you think the existence of the Space Force and serving this role to organize, train, and equip personnel, uh, do you think that will exert any pressure on the existing ecosystem um, of participants vying for funds um, in the government sphere? One of the reasons that people are advocating a Space Force is because as it is now sort of integrated into the rest of the Air Force, they feel it's not getting sufficient attention and sufficient funding. So the hope is that if you pull it out into it being a separate entity, that yes, it will get additional funds that it needs in order to ensure that we have the space assets that we need and that they are defendable. So yes, I think that there will be more money going into the space aspects of this. I don't think it's gonna be a tremendous increase Uh, What they're uh, asking for right now is uh, about $14 billion for the unclassified space program. The funding figures for the classified space program are classified, so we don't really know how much those folks are spending. But the unclassified, quote-unquote, white programs are going to be about uh, $14 billion in DOD, about 13.8 of that's in the Air Force. So, And that is an increase over last year. So I think that there will be more money going into the national security space sphere, in part because there has been such a drumbeat over the past two years about space becoming another warfighting domain, because it really was not thought of in that context previously. It was thought of, as the uh, DOD folks will say, it used to be thought of as a sanctuary, that it was something that was really so remote that these what you would need in order to make an effective attack on the space assets was beyond the capabilities of most of our adversaries. But now that especially Russia and China are ramping up their anti-satellite programs, there's a feeling that these systems are much more vulnerable and that space is a warfighting domain just like land, sea, and air, and cyber. Thanks for that great explanation. Now we're going to switch gears to civil space. NASA directives are subject to the goals of White House administrations, but mission timelines often exceed a single term. The recent 2024 goal of returning humans to the moon is led by the White House and Vice President Pence, but how does the White House and Congress work on long-term initiatives like these across uh, congressional sessions and administrators? Well, that's uh, the $64 billion question, or probably even more than that, and it's been part of the challenge for these long-term goals like returning to the moon or going on to Mars, because they do exceed presidential terms and uh, Congress changes every two years. And so it's difficult to keep the momentum going from administration to administration. And we've seen these big changes as new administrations come in, but it's not impossible. And the space station is a perfect example of that. The space station began in Ronald Reagan's presidency and it was it survived the change to George H.W. Bush, to Clinton, to George W. Bush, to Obama, to Trump. So that is a program, a long-term program that has been able to survive. And part of it is because it's been able to change itself. The space station that was started by Ronald Reagan in 1984 is really quite different from the space station that we have today both physically in terms of what is comprised of and in terms of the international partnerships, because Russia was brought in uh, after the Soviet Union collapsed uh, during the Clinton administration. So they were brought in as a partner. So if you look at illustrations of the space station, the very early ones like 84, 85, 86, they were completely different. There is a dual kill space station with all these different elements to it. And because of funding constraints that got knocked down to sort of the, the, physically, which, which you look at the object that we have today. And even in 1993, when they reconfigured the space station because of cost overruns, the actual object that we have up there now is pretty similar, but some of the modules are smaller. And we never did build some of the modules, especially uh, one that the scientists wanted, which was a, a centrifuge, a very large centrifuge facility. But it, it has been able to change with the times 
And the international partners have been a strength of the program and they have stuck with the program through all these decades and all the changes because the United States seems to change its mind a, a lot. <laughs> and, and the partners have to come along with us. And it, it's, a, it's a marriage that has stayed together uh, amazingly through all these decades. And it looks like it's gonna stick together for probably another decade or so. So it is possible to have programs that stay together through administrations by changing and adapting as need be. But starting this whole new program to return humans to the moon and go on to Mars has been a problem, you know, since, I mean, really since we last walked on the moon in 1972, but it was uh, George H.W. Bush who really started the effort in 1989 and his effort failed the Space Exploration Initiative. And that was primarily money. And then his son, George W. Bush, started the Constellation program, and, and that failed, again, because of money, because it was going to cost much more than the Obama administration was willing to spend. So they changed it, and, and we weren't going to go back to the moon, not to the surface, and instead we're going to do the asteroid redirect mission, and, and that never really caught on. And then finally you get President Trump coming in, and he's saying, well, no, we want to go back to the lunar surface. So you keep, the, you keep changing the goalposts all the time. And uh, Bill Gerstenmeier, who's the head of human exploration and operations at NASA, I think has done a really good job at coming up with a program that can be flexible. And so we'll see, and probably in the next few days, we'll see what the new budget request is from NASA to fulfill Vice President Pence's goal of getting back to the moon by 2024. But we'll see whether or not it survives this time. Right. And SLS and its predecessor, Constellation, I think provide a really good foil to the example you gave with ISS, um, because the rocket itself, the launch system, um, it's it's difficult to change the hardware, I think, in the direction it's going. But what they've been able to do is, um, as the goalposts change, they've been able to adapt what the SLS is meant to do, what missions it will conduct, etc. Um, so, as far as the development of SLS now, um, what are some? What are the primary policy factors? Is it mostly money? Is it political support? What are the things that are driving um, the SLS development in particular? The SLS has a very interesting history, actually, because the Constellation program was not going to use that vehicle. It had the Ares. It was going to build Ares One and Ares Five very different uh, design and they were killed basically by the Obama administration and the Obama administration did not want to build a big new rocket. Uh, their plan was to invest in game-changing technologies so that before you chose a rocket design, you might want to build something entirely different. Maybe you'd have other kinds of propulsion than chemical propulsion. So they did not want to build a big new rocket at all. That was their plan. But Congress was very unhappy with that. And so it was Congress that directed NASA to build the Space Launch System. And typically in law, you don't get into a lot of technical details. You tell an agency, go build a rocket, but you don't say it has to launch 130 metric tons. But in this particular case, because Congress felt so strongly about it, especially the Senate, and people joke that it's the Senate launch system and not the space launch system, uh, they spelled out what the requirements were for this space launch system. And that is what NASA is aiming for. They have three versions of it, and the final version will be this 130 metric ton version that's required by law. And so NASA is marching towards that. And so they've been working on SLS since 2011. Uh, that was that directive from Congress in law was in 2010. And so they've been working on SLS since 2011. And of course the, uh, the schedule keeps slipping. And that's part of what has spawned this sudden uh, announcement that we're gonna try and get back to the moon by 2024. It's the antithesis of what was going on. So the date was slipping, the date was slipping. Boeing came to NASA in March and said it's going to slip again into 2021. And the White House, instead of accepting another delay, came back and said, no, we're going to get to the surface of the moon by 2024, which is four years earlier than NASA was planning. And, and 
Pence didn't say Boeing, but he said, if, you know, if the current contractor can't do it, then we'll find a contractor that can. And if NASA can't do it, then we're going to have to change NASA. So those were uh, very bold statements. And we're just going to have to see how that works out because there's only so much you can do to accelerate the schedule. And NASA's looking at that now. NASA, some people in NASA were thinking of skipping some of the tests and the Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel yesterday came out and very strongly said, don't skip this green run test. And Congress hasn't even been presented with the budget for doing this. Everybody was taken off guard by this announcement by the vice president. So we have no idea whether or not Congress is going to adopt this because this is one of those policy decisions that does require funding. Congress under the constitution has the power of the purse. And so they're gonna to have to come up with a budget that Congress can agree with. And I think that's gonna be a very challenging task to actually be able to get all this done. It's not just SLS that you need. You need a rocket, you need a spacecraft, you need a vehicle to get down and back and you need spacesuits. Presumably they're gonna get out of the lander once they land on the surface. And I don't really hear people talking about spacesuits. So it's gonna be a lot of money in just five years. And I'm, I'm really glad you bring that up um, because the Science and Technology Policy Institute uh, just released a report where they concluded that sending uh, humans to Mars in this case was infeasible in 2033 given NASA's current resources. So how do these independent reports come into play um, in the space policymaking process? Well, we were talking earlier about all the different uh, ways that policy gets made, and it's a large group of people who impact policy. Uh, STIPI is a very well-respected think tank. We'll, I'll put them in the think tank category. And they were asked to do this study, and, and they looked at it. They, they, it was a very short-term study. I can't remember, a couple months. It wasn't something where they had a lot of time to dig into it. And I think they were given some basic parameters by NASA as to, uh, I remember that it was a three-year mission to Mars. Most people talk about a two-year mission, but their study talked about a three-year mission. And uh, they, they come up with a study, uh, they've completed it. It went to Congress and uh, because Congress had requested it through NASA. And it it's part of the whole tableau of policy documents that feed into the decision-making process. So it could be that it has a lot of impact. It could be that it has no impact. We're just going to have to wait and see how things turn out. But I, the fact that we could not send people to Mars in 2033, I think was pretty well recognized. There's, there are certain members of Congress who really, really want to go to Mars in 2033. But I think most people recognize that we do not have the knowledge that we need about the impact on humans of that kind of a flight. Uh, never mind the technology to, to to accomplish it, that very few people were thinking that 2033 was possible. And I think Stippy has just now come out with a very credible study that shows why it's not credible. Kind of jumping back a little bit, back to the SLS, with regards to the decision to stick with a particular contractor, does the executive branch ultimately have the authority to make those decisions or does it end up on Congress? You mentioned that Congress is the one writing the checks, uh, does a presidential administration, can they dump a contractor like Boeing for some of these projects? Well, NASA is the agency that contracts, and if a contractor doesn't fulfill its contractual obligations, then the agency, whatever agency it is, yes, has the authority to end the contract. You have to ask yourself a lot of questions like, you know, who else can do it, and how long is it going to take you to bring another contractor on board there are people who think that there are commercial vehicles that could do this and you don't need to have a government built rocket, in which case you wouldn't be trying to find another contractor to build a rocket for you. You'd be trying to buy services from some company like SpaceX or Blue Origin or something like that. And there would be a service contract instead of a procurement contract, procurement of uh, hardware. So, uh, yes, NASA uh, oversees its contracts and any contractor uh, can be terminated under the terms of the contract, you have to look at what it is that has to happen in order for the contract to be terminated. But uh, NASA could decide to, or Congress could decide, it's very unlikely, but Congress could decide to terminate the SLS program and NASA would uh, either contract with someone else to build a rocket or contract for services from a commercial supplier. We saw another uh, space contractor kind of get into hot water with the James Webb Space Telescope. 
uh, Congress has set a cost cap as the program's cost had continued to uh, exceed original expectations by a very large margin. Uh, and the president of Northrop Grumman actually went to Congress and testified. Uh, but Northrop Grumman is still working and trying to deliver that, that telescope. Uh, are there notable examples of, of contractors that have been just completely kicked out of a program and um, a new contract brought in or changed course? Well, that's an interesting question. I can't think off the top of my head as to where they have replaced a contractor, especially at this stage of the program. James Webb is so far along. I mean, the optical assembly is all done and it's tested it's through its thermal back chamber testing and everything. And so the stage of the program now is the final stage where you're putting it all together. And so it's very late in the program and trying to change contractors at this point, I think would be extremely difficult. They could cancel the program and just end it, but to try and change contractors at this point, I think would be incredibly difficult. So, you know, the options they have and what was interesting about Wes Bush, who was then the uh, chairman of Northrop Grumman when he went to Congress, he said that he was going to put their award fees, which is what a contractor gets under these cost plus contracts. They get uh, there's a certain amount of money that they agree to that is going to cost to build the thing. And then the company gets an additional award based on their performance. And these award fees uh, normally go directly to the contractor and it becomes profit for the company. But what Bush said was that he was going to put the award fees that the company gets from now until the telescope is operational, launched and in orbit and the arrays unfolded, he's gonna put all of those award fees into escrow basically and not spend them. And I'm, I'm not aware of any company doing that in the past. So I think that Northrop Grumman got the message that uh, NASA was extremely unhappy, but NASA has very, <clears throat> very few options at this point. It'd be very hard to change contractors. Yeah, very interesting, yeah. Uh, I, we've been following the James Webb Space Telescope for years and years and years, and hopefully it'll be uh, up and flying relatively soon. March 2021 is the new launch date. Hopefully I'll get up there, and hopefully it will deploy uh, deploy itself as planned. It's, uh, yes. You, you talk about the seven minutes of terror on the Curiosity landing. I've forgotten how many days of terror this is going to be. It's many days that the whole thing uh, unfolds. Yeah, there's something like 300 individual like uh, deployment operations um, that result as like single point of failures. We actually spoke with one of the um, PIs on the project talking about how the sun shield uh, operates in the, the uh, detectors. Um, so it's a de definitely a very technically challenging um, spacecraft. Yes, it is. Amazing results once it's up there and operating, but it's, we've got a long way to go before it's there. Another hot space policy topic for the general public uh, is the issue of space debris, um, especially with maybe satellite tests and uh, more and more uh, CubeSats and other satellites. Um, how does, could space policy incentivize organizations to clean up after their space debris uh, and what are some existing policies in place that are trying to minimize that impact? So from a policy perspective, you would say something like uh, space debris is bad and we need to do everything we can to prevent uh, get, having more space debris. And you might have a policy that says uh, we need to develop systems that can get rid of troublesome space debris. But most of the rest of it is not going to be done policy. It's going to be done through regulation. So the FCC, for example, already has regulations about what uh, satellite operators have to do in order to move their spacecraft out of geostationary orbit or what they need to do in low Earth orbit. They need to be able to deorbit the system. So that's done through regulation rather than through policy. The policy aspect of it is we need to keep space sustainable so that we can use it in the future. That's the policy. Uh, the policy would be to keep space sustainable, but is there any policy that would incentivize companies to want to not only clean up after themselves, but clean up others' space debris and make orbits or, or spacecraft operations in space um, produce less debris or clean up after other ones? Is that something that could be done with policy, potentially? So at the national policy level, I, 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 so there is a space policy directive right now that would assign responsibility for 
space situational awareness and space traffic management to the Department of Congress, Commerce. Congress has not agreed with that yet, so they have not actually done that. But that is one mechanism is, you know, you have one of the departments or agencies, you know, commerce or whoever, uh, working with the companies to incentivize them, uh, not only in preventing or collecting space debris, but also in tracking it so that you can move satellites out of the way or at least warn a satellite operator that debris is uh, coming towards them. Right now, the Air Force does that, but the Air Force is overwhelmed trying to serve all these customers, not just the military, which is what their job is, but also the commercial and, and civil uh, space operators. And so they want to transition that somewhere else, either to the FAA in the Department of Transportation or to the Department of Commerce as the Trump administration wants. So those are all policy decisions that are trying to deal with the issue of space debris, whether it's creation of space debris, which I think is more of a regulatory matter where you require satellite operators to do certain things, or, uh, or from a policy standpoint is what can the government do to help the commercial sector and the government sector uh, ensure the space is sustainable. Very interesting. Commercial Crew has been a politically tumultuous program, um, drawing criticism from Congress since its creation. Now that both launch providers selected by the program have had launch abort system failures on top of years of schedule slip, do you think policies like this will continue to be made? And what lessons will policymakers take away from the shortcomings and issues this program has had? So commercial crew uh, is still unproven, as you pointed out, and, and they're still working through the systems. Commercial cargo, which was the forerunner of this, I think is generally judged to have been a success. And it's a technical success. The companies can launch cargo up to the space station. SpaceX can bring it back. It still has not proven itself as a business success. It has not found customers other than the government. And part of the uh, idea of these public-private partnerships was that companies would develop systems and offer services, and NASA would be one of many customers. And right now, NASA is still the only customer. On the commercial cruise systems, that's also true. They're still working on the technical part of it to show that technically they can do this, but they will still have to demonstrate that it's a business success in order to fulfill the intent of public-private partnerships. So we're still learning about these public-private partnerships and, and working through these non-traditional procurement mechanisms like space tax agreements instead of using the federal acquisition regulations. It's all still a work in progress, but from a policy standpoint, it seems to have been adopted uh, both in Congress and in the executive branch that public-private partnerships are a good thing. And so you see NASA already moving out, using them again for the lunar program, for the CLIPS, the commercial lunar payload services, which again, NASA is going to be buying services from companies rather than building their own small robotic lunar landers. They're trying to do these for the habitat and, and other aspects of the moon program. So from a policy standpoint, the policymakers seems to have judged these programs already to have been a success because they're using the same model for future programs. Uh, back in 2013, NASA Director Charles Bolden cited uh, congressional underfunding of commercial crew as the source for those delays. Uh, and after many years compounding, we now, you know, it's 2019 and the first humans to fly might not happen until 2020, when it was really scheduled to be earlier in the 2010s. Uh, you mentioned the commercial uh, lander program for sending cargo to the moon. Do you th foresee a future where such development programs are fully funded or somehow locked in funding from the beginning to ensure that schedule slip doesn't occur to such an extent? So schedule slips happen for a lot of reasons, only one of which is insufficient funding from the government. And SLS certainly has not had insufficient funding. Congress has been adding money to SLS and yet it's still having all these schedule slips. So the funding aspect of it is only one element. And while it's true that Congress did not provide as much funding for commercial crew as NASA requested in the early years, by around fiscal 2015, I think, uh, they were on board and they were providing the requested level. So I don't think that the schedule slips today for commercial crew can be attributed 
so much to the insufficient funding in those early years from like 2011 to 2014. Right now, they're just, it's hard technically to do these programs. You know, the recent anomaly that SpaceX had is an example of that. And so I think that in any technical program, and it seems like in almost any program, you end up with schedule slips. So I wouldn't blame it all just on the insufficient funding in those early years. So you mentioned uh, closing the business case for uh, services and vehicles like uh, Cargo Dragon um, and Cygnus and things like that, where currently there's pretty much only one destination to deliver cargo in orbit, which is the National Space Station, and the same thing for crew. Uh, do you think that is related to the fact that we only have that one destination? And uh, if the policy is to encourage a business market that would help sustain the operation of these systems, that a potential policy could be to try to make new destinations? Or is that something that has to occur through some other mechanism? Well, there is already a policy decision to encourage the commercial sector to build their own space stations in Earth orbit. Uh, NASA was hoping that that transition could happen in 2025. Last year, in, in NASA's budget request, the presumption from the administration was that there'd be no more federal funding for the International Space Station after 2025. And at that point, either a commercial operator would have had to take over ISS or more likely the commercial sector would have to launch their own space stations. And that would be a market for commercial cargo and for commercial crew. But the commercial sector, for whatever reason, has not stepped up to that. Uh, Congress is not on board with ending federal funding for ISS in 2025. And NASA has dropped that now from uh, its uh, its plan for ISS, but the plan is still to transition from a government-run International Space Station to commercially operated space stations instead. The policy is that the United States wants to have a human presence in Earth orbit forever, basically. That's the policy. And then the question is, how do you implement the policy? Well, you implement the policy by encouraging the the private sector to build space stations. But what they need is a business case for commercial space stations. What can you do in space that makes money? And that has been the perpetual question. We've had space stations since 1971. That was the first space station. It was a Soviet space station. We had our first space station in 1973, Skylab. The Soviets and the Russians had space stations from 1971 to 2001. There have been a lot of space stations, and yet we're still looking for that killer app that is going to say, yes, this is the thing that we need to do only in microgravity. It's the only place we can do it, and even though it's really expensive, it's going to make enough profit on the ground that it's worthwhile. And they're still looking for that. So I don't know what the prospects are for a truly commercial space station other than perhaps as a destination for space tourists, and then the question is how much does it cost and can space tourists afford it? Yeah, it's de it's definitely an interesting uh, business market. You know, uh, Bigelow Space has been promoting that kind of space hotel concept um, for for years, and development on that really hasn't uh, progressed much. Right, and there's a new company, Orion Span, that came out. What was it last year or something? And they want to build sort of luxury hotels in space, and. It's, it's very expensive to do these things, and you really have to look at what the market is. And I think the market has not evolved. Bigelow is out there, and he's got his, his uh, beam experiment module attached to the space station, and I think NASA's finding it very useful for storing things. But uh, I don't see Bigelow finding a non-government customer to pay for putting one of the big B-330s in Earth orbit. So uh, there's a disconnect between people's aspirations and what the market is. Yeah, definitely. Kind of fully diving in into uh, commercial space and the future space ecosystem, we've already been kind of talking about a little bit on that. Commercial space telecommunications is the largest space sector by revenue. So uh, currently satellite operators, terrestrial wireless providers, and the FCC are working to determine the spectrum allocations for future services like 5G. How do these parties work together when their areas of focus are so different? Well, yes, working together is sort of an interesting phrase. 
So they each have their uh, interests, and many of the satellite operators feel that the terrestrial uh, community is infringing on the requirements of the satellite sector, and that there's a lack of appreciation that if you don't have the frequencies, you really can't talk to your satellites. It's, it's a different mental framework in the space business than it is in the terrestrial market. And yet there is such a demand by all of us for all of our iPhones and, and our Androids and everything, and we all want more data and everything. And to get all the data, you need to have spectrum. And so there are trade-offs that need to be made between who needs what. And we have a process here in the United States. We have the FCC that uh, takes care of the private sector and the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, NTIA, which is part of the Department of Commerce that does the government. So you have the government and industry trying to work together, coming up with a unified US policy for what we're doing domestically. And then we have to work it out with all the other countries through the International Telecommunication Union for what the allocations are going to be globally. And it's a very difficult set of negotiations, both on the domestic level and on the international level. And yet it is critical for any kind of space operation to have the spectrum that you need to communicate with your satellites. So working together, yes, hopefully they will work together, but oftentimes they're working across purposes. And a lot of this comes to the head internationally at these world uh, world radio conferences, WORKs, WRCs, and they're, they're held about every three years, and we have one coming up this fall. So it'll be interesting to see how they deal with all of these conflicting issues. It's... It's been true historically, there are always more demand for spectrum. Spectrum is a finite natural resource and there's always more demand uh, than you can handle and the battles are hard, hard fought. Speaking of telecommunications providers in space and some of the big names that we've talked about in the past have been OneWeb and Starlink, both have propositions for many satellites in large constellations. And space companies continue to push the boundaries on what is possible for large operations in space. In the last decade, access to space has been open to more organizations than ever, and constellations of these thousands of satellites are on the horizon. Is the policy uh, regulation infrastructure at the FCC and FAA and so on prepared to handle uh, these new novel system architectures at scale? And how does the system cope with new technologies and approaches that enter these gray areas that aren't explicitly controlled by existing policies? Well, it's a very interesting question, actually. And the FCC, of course, has been granting the licenses for OneWeb and Starlink. And yet they also have an open action item on space debris, because I think people are very worried about these multi-thousand satellite constellations. I do think there are fundamental questions about the economics of those systems and whether they're really going to turn out to be economical. But I think it's clear that the companies intend to launch the satellites. And the question is, what do you do with these plethora of satellites in low Earth orbit? And again, from a policy standpoint, the FCC is granting the licenses, but there is a concern about what kind of regulations they can impose to ensure that the satellites get deorbited at the end of some period of time or their lifetime. And uh, I, I think that the process is still trying to chew through all of these issues with these new kinds of satellite technologies. I'm not sure we have all the answers yet. And I think the FAA, which regulates the launching and the launches and reentries, uh, not things that burn up in orbit, but if they're coming back to Earth, uh, the Secretary of Transportation, Elaine Chow, just announced a couple of days ago that they're going to have a major reorganization of that office, the Office of Commercial Space Transportation. So I think that they are trying to grapple with some of these issues. So I consider, consider that to be pretty much a work in progress. I think that there is a lot to be done to try and cope with these new technology, new ideas, and to ensure that we can identify these satellites. There have been a lot of CubeSats launched lately, and the Air Force which catalogs all of these as having a challenge identifying them or even finding some of them. And so you need to be able to know whose satellite belongs to whomever, to be able to track them, to uh, be able to warn other satellite operators that there, there's a possibility of a collision. There's just so much going on. And I think that uh, it's a work in progress that so we still have to come to grips with a lot of this. 
it'll be quite interesting to see once these constellations start um, launching in mass. Um, you know, 2019 has been kind of a, a down year in the number of, of scheduled launches, but in order to sustain a thousand constellation, thousand satellite constellation or a 10,000 satellite constellation, the number of launches will have to vastly increase, um, which will be very interesting for uh, and exciting for launch uh, observers on the ground. Uh, speaking of launch vehicles, the Department of Defense is looking for new launch vehicles under the banner of the National Security Space Launch, uh, which is their new name for the Evolved Expendable Launch Vehicle Program. Uh, three companies, Blue Origin, United Launch Alliance, and Northrop Grumman, won extensive development funding for new vehicles. However, the DoD plans to follow up these development awards with launch contracts, where only two companies can win, and Blue Origin has filed protests. How do policymakers balance the cost of development initiatives against the need to expand and diversify capability? So, in that particular one, it's important to realize that um, SpaceX, although it didn't get one of the development contracts, still can bid on the launches. So, presumably, there's going to be four companies bidding, but only two companies will be chosen. And the Air Force has been asked by Congress about this, you know, on a policy level as to why they can only support two companies. And, and the Air Force's answer basically is that's all the launches that we have. So uh, although in the commercial sector, there may be a launch boom in the national security sector, there's a launch bust over the next several years. So they don't envision I think it's something like 25 launches. That's all they've got over the next five years. And so they just can't support more than two companies. That's unrealistic. So from a policy standpoint, Congress can uh, go in and talk to DOD about whether or not they can't support more companies because, of course, these members of Congress, many of them represent companies. So the companies are coming to their members of Congress and saying, can't you intercede on our behalf? And and so, you know, Congress can write provisions into law and say you have to allow more companies to bid or you have to, you know, right now the policy is that you have to have at least two launch suppliers. It's only two. That is a policy. But, you know, Congress can weigh in through the National Defense Authorization Act or something and try to change that policy. But the bottom line is, is there enough of a market to support all of these companies and Yes, it is true that the commercial sector is planning lots and lots and lots of launches. Uh, we'll see whether or not those systems actually get deployed. You know, for those of us who have been in the business a long time, we heard this all already back at the late 1990s and early 2000s. And right then it was, uh, everyone laughed when Teledesic was going to have 860 satellites, which is nothing compared to what Starlink and OneWeb are talking about. And of course, that whole thing fizzled. And there was this huge expectation at the end of the 1990s that we're going to have all these launch vehicles and all these launches because there was so much commercial business going on. And then it all frittered away and, and everything changed. So we, whether we're in another one of those situations and it's all going to fall away in the next couple of years or whether these actually proceed, I think remains to be seen. But from a national security space standpoint, they pretty much know what they're going to be launching and what they need for launch service providers. So it may be that they can only support two companies, but maybe the commercial market will support more companies. We'll have to see how that plays out. When I first heard about the awards for the development contract, it was multi multiple billions of dollars for at least three new rockets uh, to develop the vehicles and also a test flight for each. Um, but part of this acquisition contract is that the funding for those development contracts would be uh, revoked or ended uh, if they didn't win. Uh, do you think that's a, a specific policy from the DoD to, to save money, or uh, was this something they always intended to do or something that they figured out later down the line? Uh, well, I don't know. To me, that's more of a procurement decision than it is a policy decision, but uh, I don't know the inner workings of uh, how they made that decision. Uh, today, launching rockets requires an hours-long notice to airmen, or, or NOTAM, and subsequent disruptions to commercial air traffic. With domestic launch frequency predicted to increase and new spaceport proposals worldwide, how does the policy adapt to these new challenges? Yes, that's a very interesting question. And uh, it's not just launches and re-entries. And so as you get the new Glens and, and um, Spaceship Two and everything going up 
crossing the line into space and coming back down again. You have launches and reentries and launches and reentries. And you have Dragon coming back from the space station, and presumably we're going to be having more and more crew flights and everything. So it's it's a it's a challenge for the air traffic uh, air traffic controllers to have to close the airspace. And the FAA is in charge of that, and they've been developing something called a space data integrator SDI tool. Uh, a, basically a new computer system that would allow them to open and close the airspace much more quickly as these launches and reentries take place. And the budget request for the FAA for 2020 includes a big plus up in money for that space data integrator. So I think that the FAA is getting increasingly serious about how to deal with this problem because they see it as really impacting airspace control and the airlines need to be able to get people from one destination to another. So yes, it's a big problem and the FAA is working on it. So kind of wrapping up, our audience is, you know, very technical, always trying to learn more about uh, space and space policy is this driving force behind a lot of the development that uh, they follow. What do you think is the biggest misconception that you get from readers about space policy when they read your site or they click on an article and they might not be following the, the daily or monthly changes uh, as these policies evolve? I think that in terms of policy overall, there's a lot of confusion and understandably so as to how policy gets set and who makes it. So they'll hear the White House announcing a policy and people think, okay, we're done now. But they don't realize that Congress also sets policy. And if the White House sets a policy, they're probably going to need money to implement it. So they're still going to have to have Congress involved. So I think that the interplay between the executive branch and the legislative branch is very poorly understood. And within Congress, there are authorization committees and appropriations committees, and very few people understand the difference between them. And again, understandably so, it's, it's really, you know, all the sausage being made, but they'll see a report about how an authorization committee, like the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee, has authorized umpty-ump billion dollars for a program, and, and they think, phew, that's great. That's how much money we need. And they don't realize that authorizing committees don't have any money to spend. All they're doing is making a recommendation. It's the committees who have money in their pocket that they can hand to an agency are the appropriations committees. And they're the ones where you really have to listen to how they're going to meet out the money. It's, so authorizing committees only recommend funding levels. They set policy and appropriations committees are not supposed to set policy. But on funding, it's the appropriators that recommend funding, and those are the important numbers to listen to. But I think that there's a lot of confusion, and, and as I said, understandably so, unless you are inside the Beltway bubble, you, you don't really pay attention to these finer points. Uh, and the second side of that is, what are the most important stories to watch in 2019? Well, from the national security standpoint, certainly the fate of the Space Force, I think, is going to be the, uh, the top issue, and I don't know how that's going to turn out. <laughs> Uh, there was a hearing before the Senate Armed Services Committee, and I would say that very few of the senators are really behind the idea of the Space Force. A lot of them seem to be on the fence. So the Pentagon has, I think, a lot of work to do to convince uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee that this is needed. Uh, the House Armed Services Committee, it was their idea in the first place. Um, they, they called it a Space Corps, not a Space Force. And Space Force is President Trump's term for it. But he wanted a whole new department, not part of the Air Force. So it, it's still evolving. And there is a proposal before Congress. And it's going to be very interesting to see what Congress does with it. On the NASA side, certainly what's going to happen with Mars 2024. And the first question is, how much is it going to cost? And NASA has not sent that up to Congress yet. And so we'll see what Congress does with that. And on the commercial sector, there are a lot of interesting issues, and a lot of them have to do with making the business case, whether it's for uh, commercial space stations or for these new communication systems like Starlink and OneWeb. So there's a lot going on. It's a very, very interesting time to be in space policy. Oh, well, I think that's all the time we have. Um, we're speaking with Marcia Smith, the editor of SpacePolicyOnline.com and expert in space policy. Marcia, thank you so much for getting in the weeds with us here on Space Policy today. Thank you for inviting me. And thanks for listening to SpexCast. 
If you like this episode, subscribe to get future ones on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. You can check out a huge backlog of past episodes and blog posts, including interviews with key people in the space industry, in-depth articles on spacecrafts and rockets, and commentaries on recent events in the space industry on our website, blog.specscast.com. Also, let us know what you think about the show. Leave a review on iTunes or your podcast service, and reach out to us on Twitter at SpexCast, or send an email to SpexCast at gmail.com. Our music is by Nelson Scott.